Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. I am still in Washington, D.C. at NPR Studios here, broadcasting from Washington to Detroit. Happy to be able to do that. Thanks again to the folks here at uh, NPR for making all of this possible. And uh, as always, if you're heading into work or just need to move on with your day, can't stay with us the full hour, you can always hear full editions of Detroit Today on the Detroit Today podcast. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. You can download and subscribe, and you can listen to us whenever or wherever you want. How much do the media influence how we feel about each other or how we think about other communities or people who don't look like us? 30 years ago, less than 7% of reporters in newsrooms across America were ethnic minorities. Today, that number is about 17%. But much of that is attributable to alternative publications, websites primarily, that have rushed in to fill the void in reporting on minority communities. It's not that majority white newsrooms aren't covering communities of color, but rather that a question of how well a majority white staff may be able to cover a majority minority community. Are stories getting lost that might otherwise be headline news? And is there an appropriate level of empathy and understanding afforded in a newsroom that lacks diversity? Consider this. How often have we heard and still hear talking heads on television refer to masses of black protesters as thugs? Yet they don't apply those same terminologies to white pro-life or pro-gun protesters, do they? Or what about something more innocuous? A black football quarterback who's referred to as a natural athlete, while his white counterpart is called hardworking or smart. American media has always had, of course, a really tenuous, if not volatile, relationship with race. The first newspapers in this country were paid for largely with ads for slaves for sale or fugitive slaveholders, slaveholders trying to get fugitive slaves back. We've made a lot of progress, of course, but can the media still improve? And how are its shortcomings shaping the way we feel about race and class in America? Do you trust the media? Do you trust that the news you read and hear is a fair representation of all Americans, especially marginalized communities? Give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page. Put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work your comments into the conversation. We're going to spend the hour today talking about this subject. How much do you trust that what you see in the media is accurate and true, not just in terms of factual or inaccurate in terms of uh, uh, truth and fact? Are we are we portraying communities and particularly communities of color in a way that is true in a way that is accurate. A bit later in the program, we're going to hear from a couple of NPR reporters who have thought a lot about this subject for mainstream media, Gene Demby of the podcast Code Switch and political reporter Asma Khalid. But first, I want to talk about publications that have sprung up to compensate for the weaknesses of mainstream outlets. And joining me now to do that is Panama Jackson. He is the founding editor and writer for Very Smart Brothers, a website that discusses black life in America, also with this is Justin Tinsley. He's a writer and reporter for The Undefeated, a website created by sports broadcasting giant ESPN to better cover black athletes 
and culture, Panama and Justin. Welcome to Detroit today. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, absolutely. We've had both of you on the show before, but this is the first time the three of us have been in the same studio together. So it's good to see you in person. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely, man. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So uh, I want to start by having each of you talk about the importance of the space you have now, which is outside mainstream uh, media, really your own your own spaces, uh, and, and contrast that to the things that you see inside mainstream media or the things that you saw inside mainstream media that made you feel like, look, I, I can't get this done. Uh, I can't get this done at CNN. I can't get this done at the Washington Post. I can't get this done at NPR. I got to go. I got to go somewhere else. Panama, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, we started VSB. I mean, I, I don't think it was, it's a black space. I don't know that we created it with that type of ideology in mind, right? We're like, hey, we're going to start writing. We're going to write our own opinions down. We're bloggers. We were bloggers at heart and blog, you know, it, it turned into a, a bigger um, magazine, so to speak, easing, so to speak. But over time, what we started to realize was the stories that we were seeing in mainstream publications or hearing on radio, whatever it might be, didn't have the necessary um, perspective or didn't have the viewpoint that we had just because they were often burdened by a bunch of editors or people who had to make sure that they weren't saying certain things or weren't, things weren't being said in a certain way. And we don't have that, we didn't have that, that, that problem, so to speak. And it became important for us to make sure that we weighed in on things that, that were happening in the black community in particular that weren't necessarily being written about. I mean, we all know that police brutality has been a thing, right? But writing it from an emotional perspective, I mean, reporting the news is one thing. Reporting the feeling is something else. Yeah. And getting the opportunity to talk about the feeling, like how I feel when I see this, like the the sickness or the, the, the whatever it is that I get from this is a perspective that you don't get from reading the newspaper necessarily. I mean, it's it's... But it's just as important because if you don't understand where I'm coming from, you can't feel where I'm coming from or why it matters. Why should you care? Right. I mean, you know what's happening, but why should you care about it? It, it can be. It's a difference between just another thing you read on the news that you you go from column to column to wanting to learn more about something because it hit. It's you got empathy now. You got something out of it or sympathy, whatever it might be. So I think a lot of what we're doing with VSB in terms of those type of things, and everything is not deep. Everything's not serious. I mean, some of it is just <laughs> no, fun and games. There's right? really funny stuff. Right. This, uh, sometimes website. it's chicken. Sometimes it's, you know, John Legend. Sometimes, But sometimes it's it's important stories and important things that we need to write about for that purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Justin? I think at, in terms of like the undefeated, we're... You know, I guess we're just the the latest chapter in terms of you know black voices covering topics that are pertinent to our culture. I, I've I've told Panama this repeatedly over the years, man. Very Smart Brothers is one of my favorite websites <laughs> ever. I, I go to it literally every day. Like some of the stuff is very serious, yeah. but some of the stuff is actually <laughs> I can't really say it how I want to say it, but it's funny as I hell. I was gonna say, you know, and it's funny as hell. It's and, that funny. It's that funny thing that you're you're looking at and you're like. Yeah, I shouldn't be laughing at this, but I am. <laughs> no, I mean, and they, and they also have like very honest stuff over there as well. They, I, I know you guys had a post uh, not too long ago. It was like, here's why Trump probably isn't going to get impeached. And you right. know, I, I was like, right. let's be I, real about it. Right? You know, I read, I was like, right. and I, I was kind of upset at the headline. Then I read it, and by the end of it, I was like. You know, the brothers got a point. Yeah. The brothers got a point. So I, it, it, with the it's undefeated, not funny, but it is. It's, it's not funny, but it is exactly. So, just in terms of like what we're doing uh, at the undefeated, it was just you don't need us. Uh, obviously, 
we're under the umbrella of ESPN. Yeah, but you don't need me to tell you, hey, that LeBron James guy, he's a pretty decent basketball player. Yeah. You know, you don't need me to tell you, oh, he averaged 27 points or whatever he did this year. But if there's a story, you know, about LeBron, but just deeper, you know, beyond the surface, that's the, those are the stories that we want to tell, whether it's from a historical perspective, whether it's from an emotional perspective, whether it's from a, another type of perspective I'm not even thinking of right now. We want to be able to cover not necessarily the story, but whatever the ripple of that story is. Yeah. Uh, obviously, over the past year, police brutality is big. You know, so if 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 I have like an emotional reaction to something like that, I should be able to write about that. And it gives me the space. And I. I'm not saying I couldn't do that at CNN or the Washington Post, but I have an opportunity to do this at the Undefeated, and I really believe it is an opportunity to, to do something very special. It's to to follow in the lines of the very smart brothers or the Ebony's or the Vibe magazines, the, the, you know, those those voices that really have created the voice, you know, of generations and of, you know, of people who don't always get their, their stories in the media. Right. Or right. at least the story is how we see it, you know, like— right. Yeah, it's about perspective. Yeah, it's as about much perspective, as it's and right? that's what I think is very important: is perspective. Because we all know what the news is, but the more and more we understand people's perspectives, the more and more we can actually have a necessary conversation, and we won't be banging our heads against the wall like how we kind of do like every day. So, so who's the audience for both of your publications? I mean, is it is it as you say, Panama, a black space that is? That is mostly intended to give African American readers a, a place to be able to 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 see themselves and to be able to feel like you were talking about uh, the emotion behind these issues. Or are you are you also trying to expose mainstream America, white America, to black thought? I mean, it's a bit of both, right? I mean, obviously, we're we're creating a space that. We allow our writers and, and our readers to feel comfortable in the things that we're bringing to the table. But it also really helps if people who have no idea what we're talking about are reading this and getting and learning something. I mean, I think I mentioned the last time we were on here, the, the number of white or non-black readers that we have is astounding, Yeah, um, at least according to our analytics. And I like that because it. I know that other people are paying attention. If they're paying attention, maybe they're, maybe they're learning something silently. But help, maybe it helps inform their decision making going forward. I don't know how it's going to change their lives. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to purport to to believe that we're actually changing changing the white the the white consciousness or anything. Like we're not we're not destroying white privilege or anything like that. But you know what? It's you know it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. So yeah. if I can if I can or we can affect somebody's perspective in a positive manner that helps somebody else down the line, then that's great. So our audience is everybody even though I'm talking to black people. Right, right, right. Uh, at, at The Undefeated, you're started by ESPN, which is the right. largest sports broadcaster right. probably in the world. Uh, but it's 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 geared toward African-American culture, African-American issues. Uh, talk about that sort of, that balance. Uh, I mean, first things first, let's get this, let's get this out of the way. Black culture is the coolest culture. You know what I mean? Like everybody, everybody so now loves. Now you're it. gonna get the calls all worked you know, up. You know, I mean, look, it's a fact, and it's a fact. I, I feel confident in saying that. It's not saying that other cultures aren't cool, but by no, nope, you're saying but it's cooler. It's just look, you know, people love learning about the history of things. But like, yeah. like Panama said, like, yes, I'm writing 
to black people when I tell these stories in my writings, but I don't want just black people reading this because if that's the case, there's no point in having the undefeated because you want people who are previously unaware of the stories that we tell coming to this site saying, hey, this is pretty cool. Like, I can't tell you, I, I receive equal amounts of joy when a black person comes up to me and says, hey, that Martin piece you did was awesome. I loved it. But I also feel a huge sense of pride and joy and fulfillment when somebody who's not black comes up to me and says, hey, I didn't realize, you know, that Jackie Robinson and Malcolm X had a beef like that back right. in the 60s. And right. I, I I didn't realize how that kind of, you know, document what's going on with, you know, the struggles within the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, people in the black community who don't necessarily agree with that. I, I, I just really thought that started today, but it's really been going on for decades and, sure. and you know. We got to tell these stories and you don't want to just, hey, this is my audience, just black people, you know, nobody else allowed because then that's counterproductive and, and it's, it's pointless. So in a way, is is the undefeated an admission almost by ESPN of what you just what you started with, that, that black culture is cool and lots of people want to be part of it. We're going to start something where they can find that and that only. Man, look, I saw something uh, on social media the other day, and I believe it was uh, Kylie Jenner had, like, big hoop earrings on. And the, the the headline was, Kylie Jenner's hoop earrings are timeless pieces of jewelry. But I'm like, wait a minute. When my homegirl wears it, she's she's considered, like, you know, for lack of a better term, a hood rat. You know, like, like come on, man. Like, you got to be able to call a spade a spade, and you got to be able to call call that type of stuff out. Like, there's no, it's no secret that, you know, black Black culture has been used for for a long time, you know. Appropriated, for, you know. Yeah. It's been in movies. It's been. I've seen like minivan commercials with DMX's uh, Rough Riders anthem in there. You know, like come on, man. <laughs> like it is it, is no secret. And again, I'm not saying that you know other cultures aren't cool because they are. But in terms of just America, we know the history of black culture and how 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 it has been used and how it's been appreciated, but also how it's been manipulated as well. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. <clears throat> My guests are Panama Jackson, founding editor and writer for Very Smart Brothers, a website that discusses black life in America. Also with us is Justin Tinsley, a writer and reporter for The Undefeated, a website created by sports broadcasting giant ESPN to better cover black athletes and culture. We are talking all hour today about the relationship between the media and minority communities, the relationship between the media and minority reporters. How does that look today versus the way it used to look? And is it changing the way we think about each other? Is it changing the way we see race and inequality? All of the things that uh, we talk about pretty frequently here on Detroit Today. If you want to join the conversation, Give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDT Facebook page and put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work your comments into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Andrew in Sterling Heights. Andrew, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, guys. Hey, how are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Hey, um, I guess uh, I'd like to hear a discussion around can an African-American reporter report to a white community I'd like to turn it around and hear some discussion about that uh, Andrew that's a great question right uh, can you can you fairly turn this question 
around. Uh, it, and even without saying it's the same thing, which that's a whole other conversation about the sort of false equivalency there that uh, that might be implicit in that in that statement. But is there a is there an issue with the idea of African Americans covering quote, uh, quote unquote white communities or white issues? I mean, I hate to be that guy, but I mean, isn't most of our life kind of centered around whiteness anyway? So I do think that I can probably like the the double consciousness, right? Like we have to be able to operate in a white space and operate in a black space. Like my entire education was rooted in a Eurocentric view of the world. So, yes, I believe that I probably can. I Yeah, you're pretty good on that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like in I feel like as a writer, if there's something I need to write about with with a perspective that I think can speak to white people, I probably can just, I'm guessing, and I, I didn't go to journalism school or anything like that. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even major in English. I was an econ major, <laughs> but um, I would imagine that if there's a story that I need to write or something that I need to be able to tell about something that's happening in the community at large, because effectively that's the white community. I probably can do it. Now I might add a black voice to it. Like it's, it's inherent to what I do and what I speak to. But yeah. I think, and I mean, maybe that's so. Maybe that maybe that sells the question short. Well, but, uh, but I, I think one of the things you said there is is really critical to answering that question. This concept of double consciousness, which all African Americans, I think, uh, have have to deal with at some point in yeah, their lives. Our life. And most of us have to to move pretty seamlessly between two spaces. Most white people don't have that have that burden, and so it is not the same thing. <clears throat> And that that's not to denigrate Andrew's question at all, but I, I think that question uh, has to has to be answered with an understanding of that of that consciousness. Oh, I, absolutely. Um, like you just said it, we move in between those two worlds on a daily basis, like multiple times a day. I I feel confident, and just just speaking for me personally, I just I feel confident in my reporting skills. Is if you give me, you send me on an assignment to. I mean, look, I. I had to go cover the Republican National Convention last year. And it, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, there were not a lot of black people at the Republican National <laughs> sure. Convention. You know, and I look, yes, it was it was odd for a minute, but I, I was there for a job and I had to go do it. So you're I, a I've, journalist. You're there to do yeah, what you're supposed to do. Exactly. Yeah. But Panama said a word that is very, very important, especially nowadays. Like, I will report on anything, but I will add my voice into it. Now, I'm not going to say I'm going to just put my opinion all throughout the piece, but I will add my voice. And because I, I, one thing I can't sacrifice is my voice. Because if I sacrifice my voice, then I'm just a talking head, and I don't want to be just a talking head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Andrew, uh, thanks very much for the call, and and of course for listening. Uh, let's go to Mary in Detroit. Mary, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, Stephen. I am hey. so glad that you are covering this subject. Thank I. You have been in this country since 1971. Just watching your local news is always so one-sided. Let's start from our community. If something goes wrong, there's a robbery, a young uh, person, 17, 18, 19-year-old doing something. If he happens to be black, he will be so demonized. If he's white, then I refer to him as the kid, teenager, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So this is one time that I truly, truly agree with our current president regarding the press. They are truly, <laughs> truly one-sided, and they are also what I will call town criers in a negative way. Uh, I, you know, uh, 
I, I think I didn't see that coming. Yeah, no, that I, was a spin. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might agree. I guess in in uh, in the in structure, I guess with the way right. with the president in but, a vacuum. But, but yeah. substantively, I think you're on a on a very different uh, wavelength. But Mary, I think I think you're right. And and think about this story just a week ago out of I think someplace in California where some house party with 400 uh, kids got out of control and trashed the place just tore it all up uh you know the watching the coverage of that and listening to people describe it i was just thinking in my mind how different it all would have been if that had happened in detroit right uh, with with 400 black kids uh, in a in a house tearing it up and i mean there was a like there was a story that graduation a, gra- a fight at a graduation between like two white families yeah, saw that. and then they put a picture in the, the picture they put in the actual article was a black woman that wasn't <laughs> so even involved in like right. like of all the stills that you could grab from this fight that happened between two white families how does the black woman make it into the make it in there i mean i'm sure she's glad she got her picture in the newspaper right. but i'm sure that's not how she wanted it you know like it's 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 and I and for me, I want to know who made that decision. How exactly was yeah, this the who, picture who that you decided? On? Dude, <laughs> in today's day and age, there are a million yeah. pictures. I mean, right. everybody, everybody pulled their phone out, right? <laughs> everybody pulled their phone out. There's video you can pull stills from everywhere. But somehow, this one black woman threw her hands up in the air like she just didn't care. <laughs> Next thing you know, boom, you made the new. You couldn't paper. get a still of a punch, <laughs> right? I mean, what? Like, and that, and I think that speaks directly to it. Like, how are those decisions getting made, and why? Yeah. Like, why is that? Well, so you know, like, why is that? Why does that happen? But I think that raises a, an important question here, which is whether either of you would consider working in mainstream newsrooms where these decisions are getting made as a way of trying to to bring a different perspective to it. I mean, obviously, there's nothing wrong with the choice you've made. You're both doing great. But at some point, is there a burden on minority journalists to, to, try, to, to try to move the needle inside mainstream media? Yeah, go ahead, Justin. I mean, uh, of course, but I also think it's... it's it's on the onus of those publications, you know, to open those doors as well. Like I know plenty of like. Do you young, feel like those doors are not are not terribly open? Yeah, still? I do feel like that. Yeah. I do feel like that, and you know, we can be here for the next seven hours talking about <laughs> that. But you know, I think you got to be willing to give people a chance. You know, like I mean, I'm here because somebody gave me a chance, and I hope I'm making the best of that chance. So you got to give these young men and these young women. You have a really interesting background mm-hmm. uh, i mean uh, for you to be where you are as you point out i mean somebody really really reached out and yeah and said hey come be part of the talk talk a little about that yeah and look man i'm 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 no well my grandma will shoot me for saying this but i'm, <laughs> I'm nobody special and she'll be like no you are special <laughs> right. but like there's a thousand people just like me they're just waiting on that opportunity man and uh uh before i came to espn I was really writing full time at a at this site um, uh, called the Smoking Section, mm-hmm. and without the Smoking Section, uh, founded by uh, a, a brother of mine named John Gotti. Obviously, it's not that John Gotti, but you know, shout out to John Gotti. He knows who he is. Uh, he gave me a chance in like 2009. Uh, I went to I went to Hampton University, uh, got a degree in like public relations in English. Wasn't using any of it, <laughs> and you remember how the you remember how the economy was at that time. Like everything tanked. Everything tanked. And 
uh, I really started writing because I started my own website because in college I was the guy that had all the mixtapes. That was a, that was when you used to go to Circuit City and buy like the hundred pack of like blank CDs. Uh, the mixtape, you know, and like look, there's people listening right, right now who have no idea what that means. Well, see, and, and see, young. and that that's why you have very smart brothers, and that's that's why you have the undefeated man. A mixtape is a is a is a critical word in Black culture, yes. man. Everybody knows what that is, and during that time. Lil Wayne was having a mixtape like literally every week. So once I graduated, uh, my friends, we separated. Obviously, we went to different parts of the country. And I would just start a site and I was like, here's the new Lil Wayne mixtape. Here's the new GZTI, whoever was big at the time. And one of my friends hit me up one day. He was like, hey, man, um, you should probably post less music, but the music that you do post, write more about it. I'm like, why? Wow. Like, well, what's the point of doing that? And he was like, I'd like your perspective on things. And I, again, that's one of your friends. You, your friends are supposed to tell you, hey, you're pretty cool. And so I started doing it. And the more and more I started doing it, the more and more fun it became. And t- uh, to make a long story much, much shorter, I reached out to the guy at the smoking section, and he gave me a shot. And I treated, I, I like to believe, I treated the smoking section like it was the damn New York Times. You know, I was like, hey, man, this is my platform. Yeah. And if this is my opportunity, I'm going to take it. And that led to me, you know, I freelanced at a couple other places as well, um, Rolling Stone, Ebony, and I just built my portfolio up. But the smoking section was my home. Yeah. And I was just like, look, man, I don't know what's going to happen to me. Uh, hopefully I can make a career out of this. <laughs> hopefully it happens. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it does. But for the time that I'm here at the smoking section, I'm going to just, you know, I'm going 120 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And I happened to be at homecoming, uh, Hampton's homecoming in 2014. And one of my frat brothers came up to me. He was like, hey, Justin, man, I'm, I'm a fan of your work. Uh, do you mind if I introduce you to somebody who works at ESPN? I'm like, do I mind? <laughs> I was like, I Come hope, on, and like, up, I hope you would. And and literally, man, one thing led to another, and I'm here. But like 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 Panama, man, I, I don't necessarily have a quote-unquote traditional journalistic background. Right, I didn't right. come and from a newspaper. And you feel like that would, that would still hold you back from mainstream opportunities. Maybe. Yeah, I, I felt like that then, but yeah. now you now I feel like you know if the right opportunity came along, I could go anywhere and hopefully do my thing there. Yeah. You know? What about what about yeah. you? I don't desire the mainstream opportunity to be honest with you. Um, I think that's why I like what we're doing with VSB. We're giving mm-hmm. writers who don't have that opportunity a shot. Um, we get tons of submissions from people and we go through them all. And if we find somebody that we think fits the ethos of what we're doing, then we'll put them on the site. And you know, I. I those those publications are necessary, right? Because they're sure. they're the credible ones that that people look to. When you know, if there's a story that's out, and I want to fact check it, I'm going to go check to see if the Washington Post has covered it. If I'm going to check with CNN or one of the one of these other you know quote unquote you know the, the mainstream credible sites. But the truth is, I don't necessarily think they all speak to me, my community, or what I'm looking to read anyway. So. You know, I don't need them. Yeah. I don't, and I honestly, and I don't mean to 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 totally poo-poo all over them, so to speak. But <laughs> the more you get these independent publications or publications that are 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 off the grid on the, in terms of the mainstream, the more perspectives you get, the better. I think the better journalism that we're getting. Anyway, maybe not in terms of writing instruction. There's a lot of bad writing out there. Don't get me wrong. Right. But the idea is not wrong. The, the thought, forcing, the sentiment is not wrong. Right. Yeah. It's forcing a, a reconsideration inside yeah. mainstream media about what right. They come. They come to us now. We yeah. get in. Invited to come write for those spaces, right, and right. I don't have to be beholden to a contract to you. I can I can use you to get your eyes at VSB. You know That's what I'm right. saying? So mm-hmm. instead of like instead of doing this for you, I'm using you to yeah, get back at me. We, we're flipping the paradigm, right? Yeah. We you know we we ain't crossing over. We bring the suburbs to the hood. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so that's I think that's where I'm at with it, and why I don't 
I can't see myself ever wanting to or desiring to work yeah. at anyone at a big publishing house or anything like that because I don't need it. You know what I mean? It's not, yeah. and I'm not telling and the stories some, for me anyway. I mean, some of that is about culture and and race. Some of that's about generation too. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The media have changed so much that those opportunities yeah, you don't, don't need mean it, the right? Same right. Thing. You don't even need it anymore. You can actively go out and create. I mean, look, mm-hmm. the smoking section you mentioned was one of my favorite sites. I've, I've told him that before. Like Gotti, I met Gotti in person, and I was like, oh my god, I met John Gotti. Like you <laughs> right, know, yeah, at, at a panel, we were both invited to the panel yeah. at Princeton, like in 2010 or something. And you know, for me, that was that was my news. That's where I went to go get my news. Mm-hmm. There are all these other sites that weren't necessarily hip hop or, or, or black culture in nature, but. I didn't need to get them from those those places. Yeah. So I mean, not not to go all like Tupac for a second, <laughs> but like the, the best thing about you know sites like very very smart brothers, the undefeated smoking section, so on and so forth, it's like you're putting like a lot of these mainstream publications <clears throat> under pressure. Yeah, and, and the more they're under pressure, the more they start trying to you know shift their coverage or shift the stories that they do, sure. and which I'm fine because I'm sure Panama feels the same way. Like you know, I I feel like. My content is my content. I feel very comfortable that I can, uh, you know, continue doing that in the same way he does. So, I mean, it's, it's a good thing to put people under pressure yeah. because for a long time, they, they never felt pressure. <laughs> they didn't have to think about it. Yeah, and okay. we see what happens with that. Yeah. All right. Panama Jackson, Justin Tinsley, thanks as always for being here with us on Detroit Today. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. All right. Up next, we're going to talk about how mainstream media newsrooms deal with their lack of diversity. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. Music, culture, and community. Every day. Every day. Every day. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. I am in Washington, D.C. at NPR Studios here. I will be back in Detroit tomorrow morning. But it's great that the folks here at NPR have made it possible for me to be on the air there in Detroit with you today. Uh, We are talking this hour about the media, the media landscape, how it has changed in terms of diversity. It's a much more diverse workforce, both inside mainstream media and outside, and how that changes the way we see each other. How does that change the way we think about communities that don't look like ours? And are we seeing better coverage, more in-depth coverage, more contextual coverage of communities of color, which, of course, historically were locked out of mainstream newsrooms and not included in mainstream coverage. We were just talking with Panama Jackson and Justin Tinsley, two young men who are working outside of mainstream media in publications that deal pretty directly with this question. Now we want to change the subject a little bit and take a look at what is happening inside mainstream media. And joining us for that conversation 
is Gene Demby, who is the host of NPR's Code Switch, a podcast on blog and on, on race, ethnicity, and culture. He's also the founder of the blog Post Bougie. Uh, also with us is Asma Khalid. She's a reporter with WBUR Public Radio in Boston. She covered the 2016 presidential campaign for NPR, focusing on the intersection of demographics and politics. Uh, Asma is also a Muslim woman. Asma and Jean, thank you very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. No problem. Happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, Jean, let's start with you. I I think the space you occupy here is fascinating. Uh, Code Switch is about race and culture. Lots about inequality, one of the subjects we deal with all the time here on Detroit Today and on Mm -hmm. our podcast, Created Equal. Uh, But you are part of a mainstream a big mainstream uh, media organization. Mm -hmm. Talk about how that works and whether there are natural tensions, I guess, between those two spaces that you have to negotiate on a daily basis. Uh, I do think there are natural tensions. Um, We've talked a lot about amongst ourselves on the team about the idea of objectivity, right? And there's sort of some traditional journalistic conventions around um, neutrality and objectivity. Um, And, you know, we like to say that objectivity is is, is kind of crap in a lot of ways and that every story is coming from a point of view, right? Every uh, And just you can look at the stuff we cover at NPR. Um, um, it, as informed as it is, um, as, uh, as thoughtful as it can be, it is still starting from a position where, you know, it's speaking from a, a specific social location, right? Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, the people who listen to NPR, what, what we know broadly about NPR's listenership is that it's, the median age is like 52. Um, uh, it's, I think, uh, 80 on the big shows. I think the, the, the listenership is like 80 plus percent white. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the way you, you the, there's assumptions about who the audience is, right? And so we are, as coats, which were ensconced in that structure, and so we're trying to talk about these issues to an audience that is older than us, that is not that is not brown, and we are, we're a team of all brown journalists. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there are some sort of natural tensions in the way we approach things. Uh, when we used to have a comment section, um, which <laughs> mercifully we do not anymore, um, it, was one of, it was always surprising to me the sort of more elemental things um, uh, that we and we would take time in the comment sections to sort of like tease these ideas out. Yeah. But the more more elemental things that we would have to engage with because um, there were things that I think um, if I was writing a story uh, about police brutality, let's say, or if Kat were writing a story about Asian Americans and achievement or whatever, like there was a bunch of things like uh, there was a ways in which those that the conversation. Uh, was not one-on-one for us, yeah. and it was often one-on-one for the people who were reading it. Um, not not necessarily all the people who were reading it, but That's really for, a, a, for a big enough percentage of the people who were reading yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the idea of this existing at NPR, does that create tensions inside the newsroom? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I probably should say all that stuff off the record, actually. But, uh, um you know, one of the things that we we have had a lot of support in the building, um, uh, and you know, I also think because a lot of times you guys are pushing back against things that I might argue uh, NPR is pushing the opposite direction on, right? <laughs> so you notice, <laughs> funny of you to notice. Um, I think one of the things that also happened. So Code Switch launched in 2013, right? One of the things that happened is the landscape of mainstream uh, journalism has changed. Not, I mean, not dramatically, right? It's not necessarily more diverse than it was um, in the last four or five years. But 
there are so many more publications that are doing race journalism, right? The Times has a race desk, right? I mean, uh, which wasn't true four or five years ago. Absolutely not. Um, and so there are, I, one of the things that's happened is that, like, because there are more people in the space, there is just, this is just, um, one of the things that's good for us is that, you know, we're we're like a, a the, the same way that most news outlets have like a business desk, right? Or a sports desk. Like we are the we are the race desk, right? I mean, and, and the way we approach that is in a specific way. Yeah. But the way the Times approaches it is a specific way. The way the, the Washington Post uh, approaches it is in a different way. Um, and, you know, um, it, there's often, there's, because there are other people in the space now when there weren't when we started necessarily, mm-hmm. we don't necessarily have to be on everything um, and we can sort of focus on different things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Asma Khalid, uh, reporter there at WBUR in Boston, you covered the 2016 presidential campaign for NPR, looking at that intersection of demographics and and politics. Uh, that puts you right in the center of this question in sort of an instant way and kind of a meta way, right? Uh, you were looking at the, the role that uh, race and other kinds of dynamics were playing in the election, but you're doing it uh, as a Muslim woman working for a mainstream uh, publication. Talk about how, I guess, in your mind, that influences the things that you that you did and covered, or the way you saw things and the way you related to your editors. Uh, what did the, what did that do? What did that mean for the coverage? So, I mean, I think it certainly presented, you know, some challenges. I think this election season was particularly challenging for a lot of reporters because there were just so many really, I think, um, sort of blatant conversations, right, about race. And, And Jean talked a bit about this idea that reporters are objective. You know, I would often say to, to our editors on the political team that I, I disagree with this idea of, of objectivity as being a sort of norm in journalism. I think it's sure. taken on this sort of almost, you know, sort of godlike uh, attribute. And I think it's a really false narrative. And that many of us as journalists, no matter what our race or background is, we come to the table with perspective. And I think it's really important for us to remember that and, and realize that that's sort of an attribute. And in terms of this election cycle, I think it really did present attributes and, and benefits at times. You know, there were many moments, and I discussed this in a sort of candid essay after the election cycle mm-hmm. was over, but there were many moments where um, sort of my uh, ethnicity or religion. I, I am Muslim, and I'm a woman who does wear a headscarf. So at times, this was something that was just really, um, it was something that was tangible for a lot of voters to mm-hmm. feel very emotional about. And, you know, not all of the responses I received from voters was always pleasant. You know, yeah. some of I'm them shocked were to hear that. moments <laughs> of curiosity. But I think one of the things that was really interesting is I also think it gave me a window into understanding the electorate that was so accurate. And I think that you know, at times we touched upon in our coverage, but I, I mean, Gene and I would have these conversations, but yep. very early on in the election cycle, we talked about there being sort of a, a really palpable, tangible feeling of, um, uh, of identity that was linked to whiteness. And I think mm-hmm. that that was a really new wow. and, and novel idea this election cycle, but it was something that many of us who are minority journalists would feel, but it was a really delicate balance to discuss, I think, in public places. You know, and because we are, we are journalists in mainstream media outlets, and so I think that one of the, the delicate dances, I think I feel particularly when I was covering politics, is the degree to which we see things and we observe things, but we also sometimes filter ourselves because we 
realize that maybe not everyone else in the newsroom sees the world the way perhaps that we have felt or seen. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, one, one of the things that's, I guess, interesting about what you did during the campaign, Gene was talking about how, you know, the New York Times now has a race desk. You weren't on a race desk. You were just regu- part of the regular coverage, and yet... Uh, you were still able to bring these sort of perspectives and dynamics to the to the race that uh, that I that I think would have been missing otherwise. And, and yeah. I guess no, I mean a... I wholeheartedly agree, and I I cannot be like a stronger evangelist for the idea of there being <laughs> integrated sort of news coverage that captures mm-hmm. the idea of more diverse newsrooms right across all beats because. You know, there was a moment I, I covered a lot of Hillary Clinton. I was filling in for the Clinton reporter a lot towards the end of the campaign. Uh, and I remember being at an African-American church in North mm-hmm. Carolina. And I looked around the room and there was so much emphasis. This election cycle focused on how the, the girls on the bus, how many women, female reporters there were covering the Hillary Clinton campaign. But at that particular moment, uh, there, there have been, you know, sort of in and out African-American reporters who covered Clinton. But for whatever reason that day, I was the darkest person in the room. There were no (laughs) black journalists with Hillary Clinton. And to me, that is a fundamental problem when we talk about, you know, who's covering the narrative and who's bringing us the stories. Um, Just one other quick example that popped up in my mind, um, and this is sort of post-election, but, you know, when President Trump visited Saudi Arabia this weekend, it was mind-boggling to me. I sort of create Twitter lists and follow all sorts of different people. So I had my my list of political journalists, Mm -hmm. and then I have a list of sort of Middle East or Muslim, um, you know, kind of culture-critical journalists. And the conversations happening about this visit were completely different. And to me, it was this moment of feeling like, you know, people didn't, I I worry that some of the political journalists were sort of eating up whatever we were hearing from the context of the Trump campaign about, you know, sort of Sunni or or Shia dynamics or the sort of, you know, there was a lack of context, I guess I should say. And to me, it was this moment of, again, feeling like, you know, we can't we can't just have. I mean, I think having race beats is a hugely important function in newsrooms. But I, I worry sometimes that that is done as a sort of justification for not always having integrated, you know, minority journalists all throughout the newsroom, be it on business, politics, uh, you know, science, whatever the beat is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about race and the media. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining me. My guests are Gene Demby, host of NPR's Code Switch, a podcast and blog about race, ethnicity, and culture. He's also the founder of the blog Post Bougie. Uh, also with us is Asma College. She is a reporter at WBUR Public Radio in Boston. And she covered the 2016 presidential campaign for NPR, focusing on the intersection of demographics and politics. She is also a Muslim woman. Uh, we are talking about race and the media, the presence of minority, ethnic minorities in newsrooms, uh, the growing presence of ethnic minorities in media, both inside mainstream newsrooms and outside. What effect is that having on the coverage that we see 
of minority communities? Is it changing the way we see each other? Is it the way it's changing the way we think of people who don't look like we do? If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work your comments into the conversation. Uh, let's uh, go to Tom. Tom in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit Today. Yeah, good morning, Steve. How are you? Hey, Tom. Good to, good to hear Congratulations on your award. Uh, that wasn't my award. It was Mike Thompson, my cartoonist oh, award. Okay. So, yeah, but I appreciate that. <laughs> you, you know what? In terms of balance, no, the media is not balanced. And I'm going to go here to this point. If something negative happens in one of the outlying suburbs, it's the term that's used is the Detroit metropolitan area, Detroit <laughs> metro area. Yeah. And I mean, when people hear, as I call it, something stupid like a shooting or something like that, they don't hear metro. They hear Detroit. But now you let something positive happen in Ferndale, Royal Oak, uh, you know, Birmingham, it's identified as that. You know those cities. As those cities, and you know, and also going way back from history here. Remember when those two girls jumped on the lady down in Greek Town? Sure. And they had that fight down there. Yes. And I told Denny McLean, I said, Denny, the media needs to leave this alone because that happened. They were still running the thing after a week. I'm kind of like, come on. You know? So, 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 Tom, you know, do you feel like these things are getting better or getting worse or not changing? Um, I'm going to say they're probably, I'm an, I'm an optimist, and, <laughs> but I'm a little soft, and I'm going to say, yeah, they're getting better, you know, inch by inch, Yeah. but I mean, yeah. you know, and I'm not saying that, and, and it's, and that's just the nature of the game right there. What, what did Brokaw said? If it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's some, some element here that, that isn't about Racing culture this is about the the nature of news and and the news business. Um, but Tom, uh, as always, thanks thanks very much for the call. Let's go to Brenda in Detroit. Brenda, welcome to the show. Yes, good morning. How are you? Good. How are you? And good morning to your guest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm glad you guys are talking about this because as I was growing up, I'm going to deal with the world news. I've never really seen uh, minorities given world news. And I get to a point, and it's still that way. And I'm saying that is so obsolete. Now, that needs to change because you go to a different country with different cultures, and you don't see the people. You just hear from one group of people telling their story. And I'm saying, wow, and it's the same thing here. And and do you feel like that's still true? Yeah, because I I, I watch the news. I even watch the world news, and I (laughs) see that. Yeah. I don't see that many minorities um, uh, in the world news telling the story. Hmm. And even here, it gives it a negative vibe. What about the positive things that's going on? Yeah, yeah, Brenda. Brenda, thanks very much for the call and those comments, Gene uh, uh, Demby. But we had two callers there again, sort of suggesting we're not getting this right. We're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is really hard. And, I, and, you know, to go back to the idea of a race beat, like, historically, there have been race beats, right? I mean, there was, um, there were stories, papers like the Times mm-hmm. uh, and a bunch of um, smaller regional papers uh, have had, in the South, had race beats sure. during the height of the civil rights movement in the late 50s and 60s. Uh, and, you know, they were dedicated to covering these issues, right? Um, and, you know, 
the issue of lynching became a story of national consequence because of black journalists like Ida B. Wells, right, mm-hmm. um, and and W. B. E. Du Bois, and so like though the the kind of perspective there, these are things that are happening in the country that are often not covered, um, and. I, it is obviously representation is important for a million reasons, yeah. right? Uh, um, it, it, there was the way that people responded to Cheryl, Cheryl and Eiffel's, um, uh, uh, sorry, Gwen Eiffel's, Cheryl and Eiffel's, Gwen <laughs> <Right>. Eiffel's death <laughs> um, was really revealing, right? There yeah. were so many people who said that she was the template that they had, right? Uh, so much of, of wanting to be, like so much of imagining that you can be, um, that you can anchor a major news show yeah. right comes from the idea that there's someone who might look like you or someone who like you could whose life you might be able to who whose life looks like yours whose yeah. trajectory might um you know have some analog mm-hmm. so it might be analogous to yours in some way um and so i do think that um, representation is immensely important like you know Uzma is a, a a woman who wears a headscarf mm-hmm. right um like if there 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 is something about it would not be it, it would be revolutionary to see a woman with a headscarf on, like on, a, on, on the ABC Nightly, Nightly News, News, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, in a way that is like not, um, in a way that it shouldn't be, but yeah. it, is, it yeah. would be immensely important for a bunch of people to yeah. see themselves. Uh, Asma, respond to that. How how close are we to seeing something like that happen? Uh, I'm sorry, that's, that's for the spot. Um, I, I think I, I think left her dumbfounded there. <laughs> But to Jean's point about representation, I mean, I I do think there's a lot of value in that. And, um, you know, and that was something that was always on my mind in ways that, you know, I don't I don't even know how to explain this always to colleagues because you're doing your day to day job. Right. You're you're reporting on the campaign and the election. But towards the end, I was doing a lot of, you know, CNN interviews. I would do some stuff with BBC television as well. And without fail, every time I did an interview on CNN, you know, I would get emails or, or tweets from people, and, mm. you know, every so often a couple of them would be really nasty, but overwhelmingly they were really positive messages. And what amazed me was that they were not just messages from always Muslims. You know, mm-hmm. I would get messages from non-Muslims telling me that it was wow. just, to them, really valuable and important to see a diverse, you know, sort of look on television. Um, and and I felt oftentimes like you don't want that to be obviously the only thing that people see, but I do think that we need to see a sort of more diverse set of voices. I just think it overwhelmingly helps our understanding of what the news stories are. And, and people, I mean, I cannot emphasize this enough, but we all come to the table with a different set of perspectives. Something different. That's right. And yeah. that's just hugely important, particularly when it comes to covering politics. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Gene Demby, Asma Khalid, thank you very much thank for you so much being here on Detroit Today. All right, that's going to do it for me today. I will be back in Detroit tomorrow, and I will talk with all of you then. Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matt Trevethan. Associate producers are Aaron Allen, Addie Wallace, Gus Navarro, and Rhea Basha. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. I want to thank Neil Tivalt, the engineer who helped us out here today at NPR Studios, and, of course, Emily Dagger, the member partnership program manager who made our Washington visit possible. This is 1019 WDET Detroit, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. See you tomorrow.